Whenever you see a uh, pre-credit sequence message like this on a film, it generally means uh, two things. Number one, the producers think that the film that they're making is very, very important, as is the case with this film. And number two, they're doing what's called a square-up, which is that the producers also feel that the story is controversial enough that some people are going to object to it. So they want to make sure that you understand that they have their best intentions of the public at heart, which is the case with the makers of this film, The Sniper from 1952. Being a Stanley Kramer production, it is somewhat of a message picture. Kramer, uh, who is starting out his career really at this point and uh, zooming, frankly, had made a uh, deal with Columbia Pictures to produce films. And uh, this is one of the very first that he did under that deal. In reality, the creators of this film are really the uh, husband and wife writing and co-producing team of Edward and Edna Anhalt, uh, who actually had brought this idea along for a number of years and took it to Stanley Kramer and convinced him that it was a picture that needed to be made. And Harry Cohn made a deal with Stanley Kramer that he could produce pictures independently through Columbia Pictures uh, as long as he didn't spend more than a million dollars on any of the productions. So this one, I think, is budgeted about $980,000. Considered a low-budget picture, frankly, but a lot of talent is brought to bear on this production. The Anholtz had just won an Oscar for the uh, best original story for uh, Panic in the Streets, which was produced over at 20th Century Fox, and Harry Brown, who wrote the final screenplay for The Sniper, was just about to win an Academy Award for writing the screenplay for A Place in the Sun. So there was a lot of, uh, of talent involved in the production of what was a very controversial movie for the time. Of course, you just saw the name of director Edward Dimitrik there, and uh, he plays a major part in the production of this story and the, and the backstory of it, which I will certainly get to as we go along. By the way, uh, my name is Eddie Muller. I am considered somewhat of a film noir expert, but the reasons for my doing this commentary are, uh, there are several. I am uh, the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to rescuing and restoring America's noir heritage, which means we find uh, films that have disappeared and restore them and get them back in circulation. The Sniper was a film that had kind of disappeared for a while, so I'm very glad to see that uh, Sony Pictures has brought this back. Uh, it is somewhat of a landmark film, as I will explain. I'm also a, um, a San Francisco native, which uh, allows me to speak with some authority about the production of this film in San Francisco and its use of actual locations. The other thing of interest is the main character's name is Eddie Miller. <laughs> so, so I am only one letter away from being directly related to this man, Arthur Franz, the sniper. Well, what I want to know, honey,
woman is, what are you going to do now? I'm going to be happy. Now, the production of this film, they made a big deal about the fact that all of the exterior scenes were shot on location in San Francisco. But I have to point out right at the top that I'm going to call their bluff on that because none of this opening sequence here, the, the first scene of Eddie Miller in his uh, boarding house room aiming his rifle out the window, that was definitely shot on location on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco. But these scenes of him roaming the streets and overhearing people, uh, none of this is actually shot in San Francisco. This is all backlot big town. Um, I'm not exactly sure why they opted to not shoot this stuff on location in the city. If, uh, if you hear me during the course of this commentary refer to San Francisco over and over again as the city, I beg your indulgence as someone born there. It's ingrained. I can't help it. Uh, people can't stand it when I do that. But I guarantee that I'm going to. Say, why don't you watch where you're going? You might have hurt this lady. Come on, young fool. It's interesting to note that Arthur Franz, who is cast in this picture, without an audition, he had really come in to uh, read for a different film entirely with Stanley Kramer. And it just so happened that uh, Dimitrik and the Anholtz were in there at the same time doing pre-production work on the sniper when they saw Arthur Franz and immediately said, this is the guy. He had no audition or anything. I have to assume that he looked very antsy and very nervous when he was in for that audition because, uh, as you can see in these opening scenes, when he was walking around the town, uh, most of his performance involves reaction shots and uh, his uncomfortable nature and uh, the internal turmoil that he feels. And that was just something that they saw immediately in Arthur Friends, besides, you know, what they considered to be his sort of all-American good looks. This guy, you know, they very often in their uh, pre-production notes said that this was all about the boy next door the guy that you would naturally trust, the last guy that you would expect to be a sex criminal. So that was, uh, they were definitely casting Arthur Franz for his normal look, but also because he was so effective at conveying that inner turmoil just visually without a lot of histrionics. What? Two weeks. Well, well what's his number there? But I've got to reach him. I told you, it's very important. It's a matter of life or... But listen, there must be a phone near where he is. It's also something to pay attention to as we go along in this film. It is somewhat of a landmark film. This is sort of the first example of a serial killer movie. Now, in the 60-some-odd years that have passed since this film came out, serial killer movies have become a genre unto themselves, really. And now, you know, we have Hannibal Lecter, which is like a pop icon uh, with a, you know, a demented serial killer. But at this time, there really weren't a lot of these films being made. Uh, obviously, there were antecedents like Fritz Lang's M that was made in Germany in the early 1930s, one of the great early sound films that was about a child murderer. And there were 
films like The Lodger, which was about Jack the Ripper, and Hangover Square, about you know, which is essentially a remake of The Lodger. But all of those films had a very strong gothic element, and they weren't about the fact that this was a potential epidemic. So this is the first film that treated it seriously and made it like an all-American problem. It's also interesting that he doesn't want to kill, as exemplified in this scene where he burns his hand on the hot plate, which was pretty dramatic for the time and very well staged by Dimitrik. That was very smart of him. How do we show this without actually showing it and using um, a very expressionistic technique to show the shadow of the hot plate and his hand on it instead of actually showing his hand on the hot plate, which, of course, is what directors would have done in 20 years or so when it would become very commonplace to show these grotesque things. But in 1951, when they were making this film, you had to find interesting ways to get away with stuff that weren't allowed to be shown on screen. And that was a very effective example of it. This strictly woman's business. You're not married, huh? Now, this scene where Eddie Miller goes to the hospital after burning his hand is really interesting because it's an example of what I was talking about, where a lot of the themes of the film are given to the supporting characters to express ideas that are raging in Eddie's mind. Even though Eddie is so quiet and taciturn, he's not going to say any of this stuff himself. So all these normal people are the triggers that we're supposed to draw this line between what they're saying and what he's actually thinking. I got you coming and going. Everything all right? Just finished. You'll uh, have to sign this, Mr. Burns. These two interns in the hospital. This is uh, Sidney Miller, a pretty good character actor, had a long career, and a guy named Max Palmer. Max Palmer is a guy without the glasses who would actually go on to become a professional wrestler after his career in the movies. Outside of the fact that he did it on purpose, no. You think it was self-inflicted? Look, to get a second degree like that, he'd have had to hold his hand. But again, this is a, an interesting aspect of the film, is that these people know that there's something wrong with Eddie, but there's nothing they can actually do about it. And to a modern audience watching this film... Uh, and there's nothing they can do about it because they're, quote-unquote, too busy and too overworked. And, of course, anybody watching this film today would just be amazed at how relaxed <laughs> the hospital seems to be and how, um, you know, it's not busy at all. This is what's so amazing watching these older films when the, in police stations and hospitals and things. They don't seem overtaxed whatsoever. Um but that's a, a theme here uh, that is very strongly pressed in the Anhalt screenplay based on really what they said was years of research that society was just completely unprepared to deal with cases like Eddie Miller and that they just didn't know how to do it. They didn't have the right category to put them in. That, that's the whole, their whole reason behind making this film. So that crawl at the beginning where they talked about uh, investigating all these cases of sex crimes and everything, it's completely legitimate. They actually did their research. They'll only wrap him up in a cold sheet, keep him around for three days, and give him back to the Indians. Besides, we've got some more business. All right, boys, full house coming in. One stretcher, one walk. Oh, great. Let's go, Joe. Okay, friend, you can go now. 
little room, Mac. A little room. Listen, don't you think this is a funny way to get hurt? Sure, friend. So one of the things that uh, I find interesting about this film is that the sympathetic character is the sniper and that he's the only one in the whole picture that knows what his problem is and how dire it is and what he is capable of. But he's just turned loose in the society's bloodstream and nobody really can deal with it. Also really uh, amazing coincidence in the making of this film is that when it was in pre-production, there actually was a sniper on the loose in Los Angeles for six months. And I think partly Stanley Kramer and the Anholtz were very concerned that people would think that they were exploiting that story. He'd shot several people, was finally apprehended, and of course they did manage to gently use it in the publicity for the film. But it was something they were very leery of. I mean, obviously it helped them because it pointed out how this actually was an ongoing public problem, but they didn't want to be accused of, you know, callously exploiting it. Hello, Miss Dar. I was hoping you'd get here earlier. Just put him in on the bed. I'll hang him up later. Now, here is the first example of brilliant casting in the film. As far as I'm concerned, is Marie Windsor being cast as uh, Jean Dar, the nightclub singer. Marie has a, a reputation now as the queen of the bees. I had the great pleasure of actually knowing Marie in the last part of her life. She was one of the subjects I wrote about in a book called Dark City Dames. She was just a fantastic person and really a terrific actress. Um, she had made The Narrow Margin before this, one of the best bee films ever made, and that really should have catapulted her to stardom, I think. But she was just too big. She was too statuesque. She was too much of the oversexed vamp, in a way. And I think her role in this movie is really great, because clearly what the producers are thinking and what Dimitrik was thinking was we needed a woman to play this part who can make an immediate impression on screen and is also capable of projecting friendliness, which she certainly does towards Eddie. But just by her stature, she is somewhat sexually uh, intimidating to him as well. So, and that was really what Marie was, you know, she's got quite the figure and the, uh, the big bedroom eyes. And she quickly and efficiently inflames uh, whatever it is that's bothering Eddie. Uh, she triggers it. I also wanted to point out that you just saw when Eddie entered Marie's apartment, that was the first actual on-location shot in San Francisco. Her apartment is apparently, well, judging by the exterior, her apartment is somewhere on, I think, Francisco Street between uh, Russian Hill and the marina. But this interior, judging by the view outside of her window, is clearly on Telegraph Hill, looking down at the waterfront and the Bay Bridge in the background. So this is a, they're using a little bit of movie magic here to intercut. The exterior and the interior of her apartment do not actually match. But there's an obvious reason for their selection of that exterior street that you'll see in a scene a little bit later on. Al, <laughs> what are you doing up so early? 
Sure, come on up. Marie was really uh, fantastic, and even though she only has two scenes in this movie, she makes quite a strong impression. Eddie, would you mind finishing your beer out in the back porch? Al's just like every other trumpet player. He's jealous. I wouldn't want him to get any ideas. And I'll expect the dress tomorrow. You're a darling, Eddie. This is actually, this is interesting because this is actually a shot on location thing. That's not a back projection or anything, as you can obviously tell. This is right up on Telegraph Hill. Now, and this is the uh, same area where he now lies in wait. You can see the ferry building in the background. It's also very interesting, as much as the producers of this film, in their promotion, talked about this film being shot entirely on location in San Francisco. And I've noticed in the uh, production notes for this film and the publicity for the film that it's something they really wanted to exploit. It's amazing to note that the city is not named at any time in the film. This is never specified that this takes place in San Francisco. The reason, I suppose, is that, you know, it's an uncomfortable subject matter. I'm sure that in exchange for being allowed to shoot in San Francisco, the people in charge at the city said, you know, we just assume you don't say it's San Francisco because we don't really need people thinking that we have sex killers running around here shooting people with high-powered rifles. Thank you very much. So I think it was probably a bit of a trade-off. This is all, all this is actually on location. That was exactly where I was describing before, up on Francisco, above the marina. And now Marie is walking into uh, North Beach. This is uh, just above North Beach in the Telegraph Hill area. And... Um, we're duly noting the very noirish looking cinematography of Burnette Guffey, who I will uh, speak about at some length as we go along. And this is the Paper Doll Club, which was an actual nightclub in San Francisco, somewhat notable for being one of the original gay bars in San Francisco. It's pointed out in several uh, guidebooks to the city of the time that that's precisely what it was. And this club, the building is still there. It is no longer functioning as a nightclub, but it is on uh, Union Street at Grant on Telegraph Hill. And it is still there. As is the building directly across the street, which is uh, the building that uh, that he's going to uh, use as his perch. This is a case of uh, actual location shooting because they actually did use the exact building that is across the street from the Paper Doll Club. I think one of the things about this film that is... Uh, historically significant 
of course, is that director Edward Dimitrik, who made some of the early examples of film noir, such as Murder My Sweet and uh, Cornered and Crossfire, which is really a terrific film, was one of the Hollywood Ten. And uh, for those of you who don't know your Hollywood history, in the immediate post-war era, there was a, uh, a witch hunt in Hollywood inspired by the House Un-American Activities Committee with the uh, purpose of cleaning suspected communists out of Hollywood. And um, there was originally a group called the Unfriendly 19, who were predominantly writers and producers and a couple of directors, um, who refused to cooperate with the um, investigating committee, the scouting party, if you will, who had come to Hollywood looking for the names of people who were uh, known associates of the Communist Party, members of the Communist Party or known associates, fellow travelers. And Edward Dimitrik was one of those 19. And eventually he became one of the Hollywood 10 because he was held in contempt of Congress for his refusal to name names or uh, testify before Congress and went to prison and served time in prison. In 1951, he recanted and agreed to testify and uh, name names. In exchange for that, he was given his career back. So it's very interesting historically that Stanley Kramer sort of came to Dimitrik's aid at this point. Kramer was going through his own travails, if you will, with the production of High Noon. This is uh, in the bar here as Marie is playing uh, the piano. She is confronted with Charles Lane, veteran character actor Charles Lane, uh, who probably has more film credits than any other actor in Hollywood history and lived to be over 100 years old. And I think he relished playing this part because he didn't, he normally got to play kindly, friendly shopkeepers and guys. And, and here he gets to play an obstreperous drunk for a change. So <laughs> coming on to Marie Windsor, this was a, this was a banner day for Charles Lane, who's going to get 86 by uh, Jay Novello here, who is a very, very familiar face to uh, people who love noir movies. Jay Novello pops up in quite a few of them. You'll be sorry. Nobody's making a fool out of me. Nice fellow. You ought to be used to it by now. I never get used to it. Jeannie, play me something. Play me pleasure done. Marie was great. She has the greatest eyes of any actress in Hollywood, I think. And and uh, when I went to her house after I had written some things about her in one of my books, she invited me to her house and she uh, said to me, you know, uh, Eddie, I've read this stuff that you wrote about me, and you know that part where you talk about I have a balcony that can support a double run of pinochle? I really like that. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. This scene here where Eddie is going to claim his first victim in the film is, is just brilliantly staged. I just really think that uh, Dimitri showed great inspiration in the way he went about shooting this, that he kind of 
diverts attention with this little love scene that develops there with Jay Novello and Marie. And then... Amazing. I mean, that is really brilliantly done because they can't really do any bloodletting. They don't really need a special effect. And they realize not only is it a beautiful bit of business because she gets to display a little character before she dies, but the exploding glass that she breaks uh, conveys all the violence that they really couldn't show in any other way. And Marie was very proud of the fact that she was able to do that in one take. They really did not want to have to reinstall that uh, the spun candy window that they used there. They didn't want to have to do it again. And Marie was very proud of the fact she nailed that in one take. Just one, that's all. Not a chance. Why not? What's the matter? Listen, food's too expensive to spoil people's appetite for breakfast. I wouldn't want a dead girl on my front page. You got one anyway. I don't like dead girls on the front page or anywhere else. So now I've teased a little bit about uh, Dimitri's communist affiliations and his recanting in order to uh, get his career back. What makes all of this doubly and triply fascinating in this film is the casting of Adolf Malju as Lieutenant Kafka, which is an astounding choice of names. We'll get into that. But it, it was quite interesting because um, Adolf Manjou was probably Hollywood's most virulent anti-communist. So the casting of him as the police inspector in this film is pretty intriguing. Okay. I don't care how it came out. Fill her up. Well, I care how it came out. I have some money better on the game. Hey, Mac. You this is Marlo, the actress in this scene where uh, Eddie is having a little post-murder libation in another bar. This actress, Marlo Dwyer, is just terrific, and she is uh, an old cohort of Dimitrix. She appeared in Crossfire years before this, and she just does a really, really great job with this uh, small role. Makes quite an impression. Businessmen carry around. Oh, uh, I'm an engineer. Uh, on the railroads? No, I, I build things, you know, I really, really like Arthur Franz's performance here. It really develops great sympathy, I think, with the audience because he is just so utterly inept <laughs> at, uh, you know, bar chatter. And his pickup line, if you can call it that, is so completely weak and he gets so easily confused in the presence of these women that you sort of can't help but feel sorry for him. You can just see these lies that he's telling coming from a mile away and trying to build himself up and be a big man. And the ease with which Marlo Dwyer just shoots him down. I mean, he's got it. He's already got her name, <laughs> address. It's incredible. And he just can't pull this stuff off. <laughs> what was the name of the river? Oh, it wasn't on a river. It was uh, between two islands. Five miles yeah, five-mile five bridge in Hawaii between two islands. Nice try, Eddie. Hawaii and uh, uh, Burnside Island. I never heard of a Burnside Island. All those islands got Hawaiian names like um, Cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> Coco Wakahiki. She just tosses that off. That was brilliant. I think you're pulling my leg. Probably got that hand caught in a ringer or something. Hey, where are you going? Back where they don't pull my leg. Yeah, I really want to point out how terrific 
Marlo Dwyer is in this part, because as far as I'm concerned, acting is all about trying to make it sound like you just thought that line up. And every single thing she does in that scene, it actually sounds like her dialogue, not dialogue that was written for her. And uh, that is just a terrific little performance. And now we're introduced to uh, Eddie's landlady, played by veteran character actress Mabel Page and her cat Asa. Who wants him? Just a minute. Of course, what always amazes me is like whenever you see a woman holding a cat in a movie like this, a lot of people's first instinct is, oh my God, I hope nothing happens to the cat. <laughs> when I, well, I remember my wife watching this movie and it's like, they're not going to hurt the cat, are they? And it's like, no, they're just going to shoot the people, but the cat's going to be okay. I think the cat's going to make it to the end. You can relax now. <laughs> Amazing, but that still holds true, probably more so today than back then. I think people are more concerned about the animal welfare now than they were in 1952. I also want to point out as we go along the um, incredible number of speaking parts that are in this movie. It's something that the producers actually talked about There's over 120, I think, over 120 speaking parts in this film. A lot of that has to do, I guess, with the fact that Eddie himself is so tongue-tied and internalized that a lot of plot points and things have to be conveyed other ways through other people. And uh, a lot of that plot information is conveyed in overheard conversations. It's also sort of a a way of showing his alienation, how he's not really part of conversations, but he just overhears what people are saying. And, it, and it's interesting because Arthur Franz is a really good-looking guy. And when he smiles, he does seem like a very likable, charming guy, which, which makes it really uh, tough for the audience to figure out how to react to this. Yeah. Yeah, wait a minute. I'll write that down. Now, this is the, what I was talking about, why they chose that location on Francisco Street for Gene Dar's apartment, because clearly they were setting up this scene where the inspectors are in the apartment, but you have to be able to see the people outside watching from across the street, and it will set up the scene where Eddie is supposed to come back and deliver the victim's clean dress. Listen, every G.I. who can pinches one of these when he gets out. There must be 10,000 of them kicking around. To back up a second and talk about Adolf Manjou again, his casting in this film was fascinating, not just because of the, the political aspects of a very, very arch-conservative, reactionary anti-communist like Manjou being in this film that was directed by one of the Hollywood Ten. That's interesting in and of itself. But it's also fascinating because Manjou was known as one of the most well-dressed and dapper men in Hollywood history. I don't know how well-known he is 
these days, but believe me, in the 1930s and 40s, the name Adolf Manjou was almost synonymous with this notion of continental sophistication. That was the character that he played. That was his stock and trade, if you will. Even though he was born in the United States, um, his specialty was playing like suave European characters. And his trademark was a little wax mustache. He had a little black wax mustache and very sophisticated Savile Row suits and all this. So this was a major development for him that... A, he had to wear rumpled, disheveled clothes and not look fantastic on screen. And B, they made him shave off the mustache for this part. And in a lot of the production notes, they make a big deal. I think this is all PR flack puffery myself. But they make a big thing about the fact that uh, he had to be paid $10,000 so that, you know, it was for work lost because he had to shave the mustache off. Well... <laughs> I don't buy that at all because I honestly don't think Adolf Manjou was working that much at the time he made this film. I don't know what he was going to be losing. If that story is true, he has a really, really good agent that got him that deal. But he was a very, very interesting choice to play this part, partly because I think audiences would be very, at the time, would be very surprised seeing him in this role and seeing him look so different. And the fact that his character, this cop, is confused at what he is faced with, and he's seeing something new that he doesn't understand, and the world has changed around him, and, you know, I, I just, I can't even grasp what's going on. It was really a brilliant idea to cast somebody like Adolf Manjou in that part, because he is, in essence, a man out of time. He is from a bygone era. And he carries that association, I think, with him right into this film. Trust me, that people who were like my parents who were watching this film in 1952, they would have said, my God, look at Adolf Manjou. I can't believe that's him. funny, too, that uh, <laughs> Eddie, uh, his anger and this uh, uh, upset that he feels over being stuck with the dress is kind of interesting because, of course, in future serial killer movies, <laughs> that would virtually be the point of the whole exercise, would be to get the souvenir and to keep it, which he does in this movie, but he does it unwillingly. And it points out something that I think is kind of intriguing about the screenplay as a whole, is that the Anhalts are pointing out all of these things that are common to a sex criminal, that their research has shown is common to a sex criminal. But at this point, when this film is made, I don't actually think that it would have been acceptable. I'm not going to say they didn't have the courage to do it. It just wasn't acceptable to show the enjoyment that these guys would get out of committing the crimes, which was really the whole reason they did it. So instead, you're seeing somebody who is tortured by everything that he does, who's deriving absolutely no thrill or sexual gratification from any of the crimes that he commits or the keeping of the souvenirs or any of that stuff. 
So, in essence, they're displaying all of their research on sex criminals and sticking to the letter, but they're not really able to convey the, the grotesque spirit of these crimes because at this stage, they feel it's a little too much to get away with. However, it is interesting to note that almost simultaneous with the creation of this film, there was another movie being made in Hollywood that was a legitimate B-level film called Without Warning that was also a serial killer movie that had none of the veneer that the Anhalts put on this film, and it really offered virtually no explanation for the killer's motivations. Uh, it offered very little sympathy for the killer, but it did depict the fact that it was a sexually motivated crime, and it clearly showed that this guy enjoyed doing what he did. And of course, that film was kind of dismissed as beneath contempt <laughs> because it was sleazy and exploitative. Whereas The Sniper was clearly, with its production pedigree, you know, the A film. Even though, I have to say, my research of reviews and things of this period definitely point out that critics had some issues with this film. They weren't all buying that square up at the beginning, like, you know, we're only showing you this because, you know, we're dedicated to solving the problem of the sex criminal. A lot of critics at the time stressed, why did they even bother to make this movie? This is such uncomfortable subject matter. How can this possibly be doing the public any good at all? Well, <laughs> I just wonder what Stanley Kramer and uh, Edward and Edna Anhalt would make of what would later become this whole genre of serial killer movies. I wonder when they created this, if they genuinely thought that somehow this picture would stem the tide or, or something. Uh, because it, it certainly didn't do that. It certainly didn't really uh, lead to any kind of understanding of the sex criminal, nor did it stop this from becoming a cottage industry in the entertainment business. thing about the use of San Francisco in this movie and why I actually think that uh, the location work in this film is really, really good is that Edward Dimitri actually lived in San Francisco when he was a kid. He's from Canada originally. He was born in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia and uh, lived in San Francisco when he was a boy. He actually didn't become a naturalized citizen until he was in his 30s, I think. But I think that his understanding of San Francisco and its unique architecture and geography is something very vital to A, why they decided to shoot this picture in San Francisco, and B, why he displayed such an interesting eye for locations in the city. 
near Walton Street, and the, the, those streets don't exist. So they actually had to put up these fake street signs in San Francisco just to make sure that they weren't indicating this was San Francisco. So in many respects, you can say that Dimitri's use of the city is very expressionistic because he's really utilizing San Francisco not because of any association that the city has with anything else or because they wanted to play up its you know, romantic aspects. You don't see any of the postcard shots of San Francisco in this film that we're used to in so many others. You're not seeing the Golden Gate Bridge. You don't see Alcatraz. You will see Coit Tower on occasion in the picture, but none of the, the usual landmarks. And, and I just think that was really smart of Dimitrik because he understood there was a chock-a-block sense to the way the city's built. There's a claustrophobia. And all of these things are really, really useful for the story, not only for indicating Eddie's state of mind, but also, you know, in a very practical sense, giving him the opportunity to use that rifle in proximity to where people live, like this scene here where he's stalking uh, Margot Dwyer. A scene like this is a very, very early example of, oh, she gets it, uh, of something that would become a cliche, really, that anybody who grew up in, uh, you know, the 70s and watched uh, Halloween and Friday the 13th and all those movies, you're seeing what was the genesis of that, kind of the stalker, that predator's viewpoint. It's really interesting to see that this is the origin of all that. Pretty, isn't it? And now you see uh, Frank Phelan, character actor Frank Phelan, playing, uh, I guess, the, uh, the chief homicide inspector. And he displays two newspapers, neither of which have the name of the city on them, I'll note. <laughs> that was not the San Francisco Chronicle or the San Francisco Examiner or the Call or the Bulletin. They took the name off the paper just to make absolutely sure that there was no connection. ...to find a drop of water in a rainstorm. But this morning, this was brought in. Here's what it says. Quote, to the police... This is one of the um, drawbacks of the film, if you will, is um, all of the scenes of the outraged authorities trying to cope with this are, are difficult scenes in terms of the writing. They're difficult scenes in terms of the staging. There's a risk of the film kind of coming to a halt uh, when it leaves Eddie Miller and goes to the authorities. And, um, and I have to say, I just think that Dimitri couldn't quite find a way around the, the pedantic nature of the screenplay in these scenes, if you will. I mean, um, you can only do so much. And here they, they obviously have cast a very well-known and well-liked actor, Frank Phelan, to play this part and bring a little juice to it. But it really is a case of how are we going to shoot this scene? Well, we're going to put the camera in front of Frank and let him do his thing. <laughs> and that's pretty much what you get. Attention to those who've recently done time. How about checking with the Army on stolen carbines? Yeah, we can do that, too, especially in regards to, what do they call them, uh, 
Section 8. So I'm checking with the FBI and the police association. The thing about this scene that always uh, amazes me is this is where, this is a pivotal scene in the screenplay because this is where they decide that they're going to round up a bunch of sex criminals. But unless I miss something, there's absolutely nothing in what has transpired to this point that would indicate that they're looking for a sex criminal. I mean, Gene Dar and the woman in the bar were shot by a high-powered rifle, so there's, there's no violation, there's no sex crime that has been committed at this point. So why, why the inspector here goes out on a limb and decides that we're going to round up all the peeping toms and rapists and all the... I have absolutely no idea how he made that incredible leap. I mean, the only thing I can assume in that scene is that by virtue of the fact that the two victims were women, they're assuming any crime against a woman is a quote-unquote sex crime. But then again, if you're a sniper with a high-powered rifle, at this stage of the proceedings, it's 50-50. I mean, you're going to shoot somebody, it's going to be a man or a woman. It's only two people at this point. So I think it's quite a stretch to assume it's a sex crime. But... It's very important that they get to that point so that they can then present this lineup scene, which is absolutely fantastic for the time. I mean, this is showing very bluntly putting something on screen with all of these creepy sex criminals, not only parading them in front of the public and saying, take a look at this, these people actually exist out there, but it's even more powerful than that is that it's showing how insensitive the authorities are to the intricacies and, and the, the psychology uh, that's needed to deal with these people. That's right, it would rust underwater, wouldn't it? How about rifles? You ever shoot fish in a barrel? I never shot a gun in my life. I'm glad, George. I wouldn't want you to get in any bad habits. Uh, second man is Peter Eureka. Peter's a letter writer. Not a very nice one, either. He writes to strange women, and he's frightened a lot of them pretty badly. How about that, Pete? Don't you like women? Never been married? Three times. Oh, three times. They cast this guy here, Ralph Peters, uh, to play the, uh, the interlocutor, if you will, between the police and the criminals in this scene. And, and he's brilliant in how rude and dismissive and... He plays it as though he's a failed vaudeville comic who's actually playing to the audience and has absolutely no interest in these losers and crackpots that he has to deal with up here. It's like a, it's, it is, it's like a, a comedy sketch that he's putting on. And it's extremely effective. It's too bad. I thought I was going to get to find out. You're wasting your time, Andy. It's none of these men. And of course, now we are introduced to uh, Richard Kiley, who's playing the police psychologist who might as well be wearing a sign that says, I am the conscience of the screenwriters and producers around his neck, because that's exactly the purpose that he serves in this film. He is all of the research that the Anhalts did uh, in the creation of this movie is funneled into Richard Kiley's police psychiatrist character. Well, maybe she did make a mistake. Soured you on women. Turned you into a real killer. Is that what it did? You can't pin anything on me this time. Not even a rose? <laughs> what a shame. 
This, uh, this whole scene was also really beautifully um, staged and, and photographed by Burnett Guffey. But if, it's hard not to do that well because of the, the inherent, uh, because of just the way police lineups are staged with that incredibly bright, bright fluorescent light that beats down on those guys. It's really, really uh, visually very arresting. <laughs> no pun intended. He's a great help. Keep your shirt on. He knows his job. Yeah, but does he know all? Next is Dan Formell. Dan's a tough guy with small animals. Kafka. Oh, hello, Doc. Meeting somebody? No. Come on, sit down. Thank you. Hello, Lieutenant. Hiya, Tom. Get me an order of tomato beef, will you? Sure thing. Again. I didn't know you liked Chinese food. Well, it's good and it's cheap. And not breaking their arms paying, as you know. I'll say that again. Me, I just happen to like it. Been eating ever since I can remember. It's funny I've never seen you in here. Well, I eat here a lot, but half the time I'm out in left field. Find your man on the show up? Are you kidding? And Richard Kiley is, is an interesting choice to play this part. I mean, he was a Broadway stage actor. And in films of this period, I think he was cast because he had the ability to project earnestness. He seemed like a very uh, well-educated, very smart guy, very earnest guy. And in a lot of uh, crime films of this period, he played this character. In this movie and in um, Phil Carlson's Phoenix City story, he is also, the you know, plays this exact same character. I, I know what's right. It's a certain kind of amiable righteousness that he has. And he's going to have the solution to clean up the town and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's also what I love about that is that Samuel Fuller picked up on that and cast him in Pick Up on South Street as the very righteous, amiable communist <laughs> and uh, who totally believed that everything that he thought was absolutely right. So it was great that he's he's been on both ends of the spectrum. He's He's been the uh, all-American do-gooder and the absolute commie pinko in Sam Fuller's pickup on South Street. And he basically plays them exactly the same way, which you can uh, read a lot into. So if you keep dragging everyone in the book into a show-up, you're just wasting your time. Okay, what type are we going to look for? But what I really like about this scene that, that's very intriguing is I want to know who was responsible, whether it was in the script or whether Dimitrik thought of it, you know, to have this Chinese food scene where this guy who knows everything uh, gets taken down a notch because he can't actually work the chopsticks. He can't actually figure out something as simple as these chopsticks. He knows all the intricacies of the human mind but he is not going to be able to master this bowl of noodles at all. Whereas the old codger who uh, is clueless has no trouble whatsoever with his chopsticks. It's a, it's a nice little bit of business that, that actually makes something character-wise of, of what otherwise is a pretty didactic scene. He's killing her over and over again. He's been doing it in his mind for years. Now that he's started doing it for real, he's going to keep right on doing it. For how long? As long as he doesn't get caught. As long as his cartridges last. I mean, this dialogue is pretty amazing because that's something that you're going to hear over and over again for the next 50 years. 
in movies about serial killers. How long is he going to do it? He's going to do it as long as the cartridges last. And it's that might be the first example of that dialogue being spoken in an American film. And this scene is interesting where uh, Eddie watches this woman on the television. I can't help but feel that the producers, you know, since television was a relatively new invention at this time, there's a, a little scary little angle that they have on it. Like, you know, now you're a potential victim just if you appear on television. And kind of fascinating when you think in later years, the stalker phenomenon and people going after celebrities and things. Or those wishing to come can write me directly at my home. It's 380 Kendall Drive. They're $10 a piece. And of course, it's... <laughs> talk about a movie from a bygone era that the woman gets on television and gives out her home address. You can contact me at this address. <laughs> wow, that is pretty amazing. That's one of the things in this movie that really stuck out at me. It's like, boy, we did live in a different era, didn't we? I wish I talked to Dr. Kent before. Might have saved us a lot of time and a lot of trouble. We've still got a lot of trouble. Come on, come on. We're a lot further along. We know one thing. These uh, And I of course I should point out that uh, Lieutenant Kafka's partner in this investigation is played by actor Gerald Moore, who was a radio actor primarily and um, great voice. Then at some point people realized, you know, he's not a bad looking guy either. Maybe we should actually put him in the movies. He was the voice of Philip Marlowe on the radio for several years. Six convictions. That probably means he's gotten away with 12 others. Man, you're just overflowing with information tonight. I sure am. Here's, a guy <laughs> his first Here's Eddie's jacket. Girl skull with a baseball bat. She must have struck him out and he got mad. What'd he do then? Go on to bigger and better things? Gerald Moore's performance is, is, you know, they're trying to set up a thing here where he's kind of the young hipster paired with the, the rumpled old veteran. And it's interesting that he's so cavalier in his performance. There's virtually not a scene in this movie where he isn't kind of smirking at everything that Manju is saying. It was Mrs. Fitzpatrick that was killed. Warren Fitzpatrick? That'll blow the lid off. What do you mean, we'll blow the lid off? It's already blown it. Come on, let's go. Now, here's, uh, here's a bit of actual San Francisco location work. This scene takes place at the Spreckles Mansion up in Pacific Heights, and this is one of the great addresses in San Francisco, really a landmark, which is presently, this is funny, after making this thing about that woman giving her address out on the television set, I'm going to tell you who lives in the Spreckles Mansion today. Uh, that's actually the home of uh, famous romance novelist Danielle Steele. She actually is the, uh, the current resident resident, current resident, uh, in the Spreckles Mansion. But this is quite the address in San Francisco, so it's very authentic that they would have this man, who's obviously a mover and shaker in San Francisco, uh, be living here. Where are the children? Upstairs, Mr. Fitzpatrick. They're asleep. How long is it going on? What are you doing about it? We're doing everything we can, Mr. Fitzpatrick. I'm very sorry. What are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? That was an effective little bit of business, having him uh, repeat that line a couple of times. 
And you'll note, I'm going to come back to talk about this, but that, that abrupt fade-out that Dimitrik uses there is a technique that he uses several times in the film. You'll notice as we go along. Now, these two uh, pants pressers here are, you know, the classic example of what we were talking about earlier, how so much stuff is left to these uh, character bits. And you absorb the callousness of the society is expressed through the little bits of business that these character actors have, where most of what they're saying shows the intolerance and the ignorance that obviously the producers feel is sort of endemic to the society and that helps kind of breed guys like Eddie Miller. My wife's breakfast. Well, you'd think she'd expect me to go out and catch him myself. Somebody better catch him. Cops ain't doing any good. There's editorial in the paper. It's the same as today. I mean, this dialogue in, in another form is exactly what you're going to hear in movies today in this exact same kind of story. And, and contrary to a popular belief among people who have seen this movie, that actor in the foreground is not Wally Cox. A lot of people think that that was the famous Wally Cox, the center square on the Hollywood squares for years and years. It is not. It's an actor named Ken Terrell. And that was Joseph Mel as the actor in the in the background behind him. This isn't a personal matter. The people of this city are alarmed and frightened. There's a maniac loose, and the police seem helpless. That's why we've asked for this conference. We want to know why such a state of affairs can continue. Now here, of course, is the we're outraged, what's the city going to do about it scene that is supposed to be taking place in City Hall in San Francisco. The backdrop out the window is not actually an effective recreation of what the view would be from the mayor's office, but there you have it. haven't caught the man. Most killers are caught because of motive. There's no motive here. Murder itself can be a motive. We're short. Now, this is interesting because this is uh, the chief of police is being played by uh, Chick Clark who I swear has played more cops than any man in movie history. So finally, he usually is like a captain in the station house or a sergeant or something. So he must have been very happy when he made this movie because he got a promotion to the chief of police. But that guy over the mayor's shoulder is like the face of law enforcement in Hollywood movies. And you know it's serious when the producers bring in Carl Benton Reed, that's the actor uh, playing the newspaper publisher here. Carl Benton Reed was always a, uh, a voice of authority. He was a policeman, played the uh, chief of inspectors in my favorite film of all time, In a Lonely Place. But all these authoritative voices in this scene. And of course, this is a bit of creative license on the part of the screenwriters because... This is a meeting in the mayor's office with newspaper publishers, chief of police, all the, and the police psychiatrist is somehow in this meeting. I, I actually don't think that this guy would have been invited to this meeting, but it does give him the chance to uh, educate them all for a moment. Do you know the legal definition of insanity? No. I'll tell you. It's based on an old English law law passed when they were still burning witches. An insane person, according to the law, must not be able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Well, obviously, this man doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Don't be too sure of that. And this actor, John Eldridge, his big claim to fame is that he was in a picture that was done at Republic a couple of years before this called Lonely Heart Bandits. 
<laughs> and he played Ray Fernandez, the serial killer <laughs> who um, killed women who answered Lonely Hearts ads. That was the first version of that movie. So see, there you go. I just pointed out a serial killer movie made before The Sniper. But of course, that was a B film from Republic based on a very, very famous case. And he played the lead in that. And that film has been, that story has been remade many, many times as The Honeymoon Killers and uh, Deep Crimson by Arturo Ripstein. He made that down in Mexico. And recently the film Lonely Hearts that starred uh, Salma Hayek and uh, Jared Leto. All the same story. And John Eldridge that you see sitting there in the mayor's office was the first guy to play that part in a movie. And it's interesting, and this scene, too, is where Kylie references the case of Albert Fish. And that was actually the case that inspired the Anhalts to originally investigate sex criminals. And it's really weird to me to hear Albert Fish referenced in a movie from the early 1950s, because that is a case that is just so outrageously depraved that even having the guy's name mentioned in a Hollywood movie seems totally weird and subversive because he was just uh, probably the most egregious sex killer lunatic in the annals of serial killers. I mean, that was child molestation and cannibalism and everything you could possibly think of. A few years ago, a man named Albert Fish was executed in New York for the murder of a child. A judge of the state Supreme Court estimated that this man had undoubtedly killed at least 15 others. Now, he was executed for one, but 16 were dead. And, and they're soft peddling the whole Albert Fish thing here. Uh, there, are, there are stories that his victims numbered in the hundreds. People away when they're first caught. Those who can't be cured will be cured. Those who can't, well, at least they'll never get out to try it again. If you can get a law like this passed, you could start a ball rolling all across this country. Get a law like that passed, and this meeting could be a milestone. Well, obviously, this was the producers on their, on their soapbox. And, of course, it's a little troubling to hear somebody talking about a solution like this to a problem where it's like, you know, get these people off the streets. You know, the minute you suspect that somebody might have a problem, lock them up. <laughs> <laughs> careening dangerously close to a fascist state that he's, you know, saying would be the answer to all of our problems. So, um, you know, you can see the, the dilemma that everybody's faced with here, which is probably why it's appropriate that Adolf Manjou is playing a lieutenant on the police force named Kafka. It's like, what is the answer here? I mean, it's just, uh, there really is no solution, but it's interesting that Richard Kiley is given the uh, the onerous task of telling everybody exactly how you can solve this problem. Mm. Well, it's still sitting right in my lap. Now all I have to do is catch him. Oh, sure, you'll catch him and they'll kill him and everybody will forget about it. That is till the next one comes along. And it'll start all over again. <laughs> You'll notice that they always give Kylie the last word in every scene that he's in. He gets to give the declaration of if they, if only they would listen, they could. I'd solve everything. There's Coit Tower. 
And now this scene on the on the rooftops of the city is an example of Dimitric really, really using San Francisco locations extremely well. And this is what I was pointing out, why the producers actually opted to shoot this film in San Francisco as opposed to shooting in Los Angeles is you really don't get this sense of, uh, you know, a vertical city and the compact nature of the city. That just doesn't exist in Los Angeles. So by moving just up the coast of San Francisco, it makes much more sense. It's a much more effective location for somebody terrorizing the city with a rifle on top of all these rooftops. And you get that sense of entrapment because it's this tiny little city completely surrounded, or on three sides, by water. And of course, this is uh, another little anachronism of the time. I mean, you really get to see how difficult police work was back then. These guys do not even have walkie-talkies to communicate with each other. They actually have to whistle between buildings. <laughs> Amazing. And if this looks familiar um, to younger people in the audience, it's probably reminding you of a film made in San Francisco in the early 1970s called Dirty Harry, which is essentially the same movie in many respects about a, a crazed sniper on the loose. But of course, um, Dirty Harry made uh, 20 something years later, a very, very different film. And by that point, people were so fed up with what was happening in American society, that that film became a big hit by saying that the only way to deal with crazy people is to just go out and hunt them down and shoot them like wild dogs, even if it means being thrown off the police force. In years. The hammer doesn't work and there's no firing pin. Look, Lieutenant, the way things are today, you jump first, then ask the questions. I saw the gun, I brought him in. Where'd you get this, son? It used to belong to my father. What were you doing up on the roof? Nothing. Now, of course, this scene is pretty remarkable not because of anything in the movie, but because after this film was released, there was actually the case of a kid in Toronto who watched the sniper 12 times and then went out on the top of a building in downtown Toronto and started shooting at people from behind a billboard. He hit five people, wounded three of them. Fortunately, he didn't kill anybody before he was taken into custody. And, you know, he said, I just shouldn't have seen the movie. They shouldn't have let me see the movie. And um, the families of those people who were shot and a number of other people as well brought a, uh, you know, a, a class action suit against Columbia Pictures for releasing this film, saying that it inspired this guy to go out and do copycat shootings. Uh, and a judge dismissed that whole thing out of hand and just said that the film cannot be held responsible. They were probably feeling pretty good about that square up at the beginning at that point. It just goes to show you, I mean, even back then, the entertainment industry was uh, not immune to the public being outraged by stuff like this uh, being shown on movie screens. This scene is shot in Buena Vista Park, which used to be the vantage point in San Francisco from which to see the whole city and the bay and everything until they finally built uh, roads up to the top of Twin Peaks, which is taller and offers a more spectacular view. This is right in the hill above um, the Haight-Ashbury, so the whole summer of love is gonna happen right at the foot of this hill in about 12 or 15 years. 
One side, please. One hey, side how many does through. that make? Four? Why don't you do something? Earn your money. Oh, they're always there after it happens. Getting so you can't even go to a park on a Sunday. Some police force. How long ago did it happen? About 15 minutes ago. You got here fast enough. Where did the shot come from? Where did the shot come from? Now, this is something, another thing that kind of I didn't quite understand in the in the screenwriting here is they are uh, going to inspect the scene here and they're going to find a spent shell from this guy's rifle and they're going to find the bandage from his hand but they're going to find it like a hundred feet away from where the victim is so I, I, what's he doing with a high-powered rifle I mean you could kill somebody with a rock from that distance so I'm not exactly sure what the guy's doing out there shooting people, you know. It, it, it's not his M.O., shall we say. And, of course, it, initially when I saw this movie, I had a little problem with the fact that, oh, yeah, right, he conveniently leaves the bandage on the, on the branch there. But then when you think about it, you realize that he does want to be caught. That seems to be the whole point of his character, is at every turn he is all but begging to be apprehended so he can stop killing so when you look at it that way, I guess uh, that rather obvious clue hanging on the branch there uh, does sort of make sense. Now this composition, this, this is typical of Edward Dimitrik as a director. This beautiful shot of Eddie Miller in the foreground and the Ferris wheel in the background. <laughs> I love it when he tries to take him out with the toy rifle. That is just great. But this composition is uh, is classic Dimitrik. He really loved to convey ideas by juxtaposing what he had in the foreground of an image with something in the background. And you'll, you'll see that at several times in the course of this picture. Now, this is supposed to be Playland at the Beach, which is a famous amusement park out at Ocean Beach in San Francisco. This is a place where I spent numerous birthdays when I was a boy, but I can tell you that this is actually not Playland at the Beach. I think this is actually the Pike in Long Beach, if I'm not mistaken. Another famous amusement park, but in Southern California. And the difference, I'm not sure. Hey, Don, he looks like a pitcher, an empty pitcher. This is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's dunking this gal. This is Robin Raymond is the actress uh, in the dunk tank here. And she is just terrific. Pretty lucky. <laughs> this may actually be the best scene in the movie because the way this whole thing is set up with him being right in the middle of the action, aiming all of his hostility at her, and surrounded by all of these people who are kind of encouraging this, and just the whole concept of, you know, hit the bullseye, dunk the woman. It's, it's pretty fascinating, really. And her reactions are just fantastic. And then, of course, when he stops and throwing at the target and throws them at her, everything changes, and it's absolutely brilliant. And, then, and then at that point, the people are shocked. Now he's crossed the line. Previously, that's all okay. Throw baseballs at a target, knock the woman in the water, it's all fun and games. 
But then it turns. <laughs> now it's no longer fun. Do not throw the baseballs directly at the woman. That you have now cr officially crossed the line. So maybe that would be like an instructional video to show young boys. This is where the line is officially drawn, okay? Thank you. Curious, I, I so want to know what that lapel pin is that Adolf Manjou is wearing in this scene. I, it, it vexes me terribly. I just really want to know what that is. If it's some statement of some sort, I don't know. Whether it's just like the Rotary Club or something, I don't know. Or is it some anti-communist pin that he's wearing? I, I don't know. But anyway, it was interesting because um, the way people reacted, the people in the know who followed all that stuff about the, the, the witch hunt and Manjou's uh, testimony, before Congress, where he basically read the phone book, uh, naming names. I mean, he named everybody he could possibly think of. And then the fact that he would end up working with Dimitrik, who was one of the Hollywood Ten, is, is pretty fascinating because I really don't think that there were any ramifications as far as Dimitrik was concerned. Because by that time, I think he had lost most of his friends who he'd been associated with who were in the Communist Party, who had nothing to do with him by the time he was making this picture. So they didn't come to him and say, why in the world would you cast Manjou? Because uh, at that point, I think Dimitri very seriously had recanted and, and truly did um, regret his involvement. He felt that he had been led down the, the path, if you will, into the party. I love this shot in the, in the police file room, by the way. That was Lieutenant Kafka. <laughs> I mean, that was right out of the trial. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very beautiful image. But it was interesting that uh, it wasn't Dimitrik who was questioned about working with Manjou as much as it was Adolf Manjou whose, whose friends said to him, wow, what was it like to work with that, you know, commie? And, uh, and Manjou, you know, to his credit in a sense, dismissed the whole thing and just said, hey, I'm a whore. <laughs> that was his official reaction to it. Um, you know, the bottom line is all these guys just wanted to work. That was really it. Politics aside, I'm offering no rationale, no excuses, nothing. I was not there. <laughs> I have no idea how deep these things run with people. But one thing I do know about all the people who worked in Hollywood is they wanted to keep working in Hollywood. And... Uh, like I say, Manju was happy to get this part at that point, I think. Next thing you know, we'll be coming right into your house. I think it's horrible. Who'd he kill this time? A girl walking in the park with her boyfriend. But he left a bandage behind him. Maybe that's clue enough for them. I certainly hope so. Wherever you go... This is Geraldine Carr. This is the woman who's been on Eddie Miller's back from the beginning at the Alpine Delivery Company. And she gives a very effective performance in this film. In some respects, I don't mean to be flippant about this, but it seems like this is the woman that he's wanted to kill all along. I mean, it's really odd that she has been openly aggressive and bitchy to him through the entire movie, and it has never occurred to him to take a shot at her, but a number of women who have done nothing but, you know, say something uh, cross or look at him sideways, they're the ones that actually get victimized. It's, uh, it's an unfair world. 
Operator, give me the police department, please. You sure you got the place surrounded? He can get in, but he won't get out. Is he often late? Is he? Maybe three times in the last couple of weeks, Mr. Alpine. Mr. Alpine is played by an actor named Charles Wagenheim. And I will not go into the, <laughs> the incredibly bizarre uh, fate of Charles Wagenheim right now. There's another shot in San Francisco movie called The House on Telegraph Hill. Not, in fact, a Sony production, but if you, uh, if you do watch that movie, I did the commentary on it, and I do detail uh, the Charles Wagenheim story, which uh, is interesting, but not, not worth mentioning in two separate audio commentaries, so I'll just leave that one alone. some early examples of people in the crosshairs of high-powered rifles, which would become far more, unfortunately, commonplace in movies. This steeplejack here is a man named Ralph Clark, who was a bit of a celebrity in San Francisco. <laughs> Back in the day when you had, like, your celebrity steeplejack, this was the guy. I mean, he, when they wanted to cast this part, they knew to get Ralph O. Clark from San Francisco. And this was a big deal that he performed this stunt. This is the Pacific Gas and Electric Company smokestack in San Francisco. And a nice little bit of business with the, the paint can there, which foreshadows the mess that he's going to make on the ground. So that was a nice little bit of business that Dimitri put in there. I didn't kill her. You can see I didn't kill her. Why do you have to yell like that? And of course, I love the, the mind of the sociopath. Why are you yelling? I didn't do anything. I didn't kill her. I haven't done anything wrong yet. And, and this was a big stunt that they made a big deal about, that he actually did this plummet from the smokestack. Now, I need to digress for a moment here and bring up the backstory of the person who I think is probably the most unbelievably talented member of the creative team that put the sniper together. Certainly the most colorful, the most talented, and the only one I think who is actually deserving of the title genius. And that would be the composer of the score, George Antiel. He was an amazing character who was born in New Jersey and was a musical prodigy, ended up studied under some pretty well-known composers, and then went to Europe in the 1920s and became part of that whole amazing scene in Paris with uh, James Joyce and Igor Stravinsky, who was his idol, uh, Hemingway, Man Ray, all those amazing artists who congregated in Paris in the 1920s. 
And he was uh, an avant-garde composer, and he would play, you know, almost eight, he was a pianist, and he would play almost atonal, very, very challenging works that were largely unaccepted by the public. There's even a film, the title escapes me right now, but it was a documentary made of one of Antille's concerts where you can actually see Man Ray slap someone in the audience for responding negatively to Antille's music. And this was absolutely an amazing character who not only composed avant-garde music, but he wrote crime fiction. Uh, he had a book published, uh, like Death in the Dark or something like that, in 1930. He was a very astute criminologist himself who wrote a textbook in 1937 on the subject of glandular criminology, if you can believe that. Uh, that had to do with hormones and their effects on people's behavior and how this all led to the commission of crimes. So it's fascinating that Antiel would come to score this movie. I almost suspect that when he found out about the production, he said, no, I need to score that film because I understand this subject completely. In fact, I wrote the book about it. Um, but, but truthfully, the most remarkable thing about George Antiel is that after he had come to Hollywood in the 30s and started working as a freelance composer, he was at a uh, dinner party one night with actress Hedy Lamarr, and they actually started talking about, <laughs> I can't believe this, like um, spread spectrum technology and radio frequencies and all, and came up with the original design for controlling torpedoes through long-range radio frequency. Don't, I, I don't really understand all this stuff. But to condense it, they actually filed a patent, the two of them together, for this technology that was specifically designed to control torpedoes. Eventually, they let the patent lapse without anything happening. That technology is... To what is today used to make cellular communications possible. So essentially, and you can actually go online and see the original drawings that Antille did describing this technology. It is unbelievable. In effect, George Antille, the composer of the score for this movie, and Hedy Lamarr designed the patent for what is now cellular telephone technology. Remarkable. <laughs> Now, as we move towards the climax of the picture here, this is really fascinating to me because they do things in the film that are very unexpected. For instance, Eddie's just disgusted, you know, being figured out. And nine times out of ten, when Mabel Page realizes that he's the guy, he would have killed her. But it, it's really a wonderful switch. You can't even say it's a switch because they're not reacting to anything at this point. They're kind of creating the template with this movie. Instead, he just is disgusted with himself, and he walks upstairs. And at this point, he obviously knows that it's over, that they're going to be coming for him, and he's going to barricade himself in his room here. And I really, really commend the filmmakers uh, for the way they staged the whole climax of this movie. It doesn't uh, succumb to wanting to be a kind of a cheap shoot 'em up thriller. They, I was going to say, they stick to their guns. Hmm. Sorry for that, but uh, there you have it. They, uh, they follow through 
completely with their depiction of this guy as a, as a sympathetic character. This is, again, really good use of San Francisco. This is Filbert Street. Uh, that's St. Peter and Paul Church there in the mid-range. This is a, that's San Francisco. <laughs> that's exactly uh, why you use the city. You'll notice that Burnett Guffey, the cinematographer, who's a guy linked with the noir movement because he was the go-to guy at Columbia Pictures and a lot of noir, quote-unquote noir films that were made at Columbia, he shot them. But as a cinematographer, he really did not have a lot of truck with that whole business. And his films do not really reflect the classic noir style of deep shadows, deep focus, high contrast lighting. That was not Burnett Guffey's style at all. He really went for kind of flat, naturalist lighting. Uh, he believed that cinematography should look like reality, the, the lighting conditions in which a scene takes place, he didn't fight with them. He just used it and said, yeah, if it looks like that, that's fine. That's what it is. His whole use of San Francisco, it's interesting how he uses these long focal length lenses to kind of compress the city and flatten it out to give it this sense of people living right on top of each other. I figure I'm using tear gas. I'll go in. Don't be foolish, Frank. Why not? Come on, Joe, let's try the back. Mates, Flaherty! Lieutenant Kafka's going in the back way, follow him. The news truck that you saw there, that one they got from uh, the local station in San Francisco, KPIX, is actually uh, still operating in San Francisco. That's the real thing. And I'm certain that Demetric cast a lot of locals right out of North Beach in this scene. The crowd has a look of authenticity. We've got you surrounded. We'll give you five minutes to come out. This whole thing staged right here on Telegraph Hill is really great because you get that sense of claustrophobia. Like I say, this didn't exist in L.A. Old L.A., downtown Bunker Hill, that kind of, is the only place where this existed, but they, they kind of steamrolled that and turned it into all offices and things so you didn't have a residential neighborhood like that in L.A., uh, but it still exists to this day in San Francisco. Frank Phelan sporting a pretty nice looking Hamburg in this scene. Four and a half minutes, Eddie. And then the climax of the film here is really terrific because um, you've seen this in a million movies. I, this reminds me of Don Siegel's Madigan when they're coming in to get the killer at the end. But they have something very, very different in mind in this film, and I think it's it's quite effective. Oh, Miller. Coming out, Miller? Now, this is something that's right out of an old 1930s movie. You, you would have thought by 1952 that the police had figured out a better way of getting into a locked room than using a machine gun 
to open the door. <laughs> Can't say that's the safest way to get into a locked room. But here, I, I really feel that they knew all along that this was their ending and that they really wanted to get this close-up of him at the end that's all but pleading for sympathy for people that suffer from these problems. And of course, that's a glycerin tear they've put in Arthur Fran's eye to make sure it picked up the light. But there you have it, really one of the very first uh, serial killer movies, and it's interesting to note that it was a, a very empathetic and sympathetic portrayal of the subject, The Sniper. <laughs> 